It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It is a pleasure to have you listening to the show with us each and every day. It is also a pleasure to welcome my guest to the show for this portion of the program. And with me, I have Mark Serpa-Francoeur along with Rabinder Appel, and they are the co-founders of Lost Time Media. It's a Toronto-based production company focusing on engaging social issue documentary films and interactive projects, which have uh, produced a wide range of linear and interactive documentaries since 2013. Now, they are here partly, I'd like to get some background about Lost Time Media, but also uh, I would like to talk to them about a film that they have in the Kingston Canadian Film Festival that is happening from February 26th to March 7th, and their film is being aired on the 28th. It is called No Visible Trauma, so I would like to welcome them both to the show. Mark, Rabindra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us, David. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure. And we're going to talk a little bit about No Visible Trauma, the film that you have it, it, have put into the film festival this year. But I also wouldn't mind uh, getting a little bit more information about your company, Lost Time Media. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, we um, just by way of background, you know, we've been friends for a very long time. We we're born and raised in Calgary, um, which is where No Visible Trauma is set in a couple. Uh, I think this is the second film we've done there. Uh, but we do a range of, broadly speaking, social issue documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe folks might have seen a few years ago, in partnership with the Globe and Mail, we, re- we released something called uh, The World in Ten Blocks, which was a feature-length interactive documentary about immigrant small business owners in the Bloor Court neighborhood of mm-hmm. Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still up and running, if anyone wants to check that out at theworldin10blocks.com. It's sort of like a uh, self-guided um, tour of the neighborhood in which you go into different businesses and, and meet virtually the uh, business owners. Uh, at the time, it seemed, uh, you know, uh, a bit maybe ahead of the curve. Now, I mm. think in the COVID era, doing things virtually maybe is is very banal almost at this point. Mm. Um, uh, you know, so we've done a few other films, uh, sort of portrait films. We did a film set in uh, Portugal about two older women living with uh, disabilities, Portugal being where my mother is from. Mm. Um, so sort of a range of projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, no Visible Trauma set, again, in our hometown um, is a pretty uh, deep uh, deep dive, so to speak, into uh, accountability, accountability issues uh, at and surrounding the Calgary Police Service. So it's our first sort of longer form uh, investigative piece and long, right. both in terms of the length, but yes. also in terms of how long we've been working on it. It's about five years now that... Uh, that we've been working on this. Pro- Actually, I'm doing the math and it's approaching six years because right. we started uh, basically in mid-2015. Yes, and of course, we're going we're gonna to talk uh, quite in length about the film. But uh, first of all, can I ask you both what drew you to the documentary side of filmmaking? Mark? Sure. Um, you know, it's. I think that we... Um, and I'll let Rabinder jump in here momentarily, but I think that uh, document, you know, we come from slightly, you know, Rabinder has always been interested in film since a very, very young age. My interest was more on the writing side. And I remember back in high school, I believe, I mean, there was a few, you know, you know we used to do high school uh, little projects together. We did something called, uh, you know, Wisewood, which was our high school in Calgary, has 22 minutes in which we were sort of doing streeters in the hallway talking with <laughs> 
other students about mm. policy issues, race, you know, mm -hmm. different different mm -hmm. sorts of issues like that. Um, and I think in high school, I think formative. I remember we went and saw uh, the corporation. Oh yeah. Um, or I don't know if we saw it. Ravinder, did we see it together or did we see it independently? I, yeah, we I believe we did see it together. Yeah. If memory serves. Anyways, that was, you know, I think from around that time, it just started to coalesce, I think, in the high school and then following high school years that this might be a, a medium in which we could sort of bring together our disparate skills and interests and mm -hmm. uh, engage with different uh, different topics in a in a sort of substantive way. Okay. Yeah. And my uh, Mark and I actually went to India together in, when we were about 1920 and uh, my family is originally from India, from Punjab, and we were there and uh, with a little video camera and started just talking to some of the farmers that were in the villages in, in Punjab, uh, which is a serious agricultural region. And that was really the, the first documentary we did, the first proper documentary we did was about uh, agricultural issues up there in, uh, in Punjab. And uh, I think for us, uh, you know, we dabbled in other film stuff, but it just started to become clear that we also had an interest in uh, the investigative side, but also just trying to have an impact on some of these major issues that we saw unfolding around us. And uh, the best way to do that for us seemed to be to go into documentary film. And, and here we are all these years later. Right. Well, that's that's great. And thank you for both showing that. Now, um, Mark mentioned that he's the, he's sort of interested in the writing side of things. Uh, Rabinder, what is your interest in, in films? So from an early age, just really the I do the, the camera work. And uh, the technical side uh, is more where I uh, have had my interest since the beginning and, mm -hmm. you know, starting out with editing from a pretty young age and uh, just, you know, picking up a camera and getting the handle, uh, getting the hang of different kinds of gear and, and then continuing that up until the present moment with, mm. you know, staying up to date with camera technology and, and editing software as well. So that I'm on more of the technical side and Mark has definitely uh, had more of an interest in the writing and the story side of things going back. <laughs> okay, but now but we, we do do everything now. Yeah, I was going to say at this point in time, it's pretty much you know we 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 write, we edit, uh, we direct, we kind of do everything together, which is always um, you know uh, it, it's uh, I think we've been sort of refining those uh, that, that right. collaborative process over the years, um, but. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's you know we really appreciate having each other. I think because mm -hmm. uh, you know two heads are always better than one. It's sometimes right. uh, you know you know you need to run this by the other guy and say, wait, are we, we sure we want to do this? Right. Or you know, or just uh, problem solving. It's um, anyways. It's very we're very lucky to have a a functional collaborative uh, partnership that lets us, I think, uh, get done a lot more together than we would uh, as individuals for sure. And it certainly sounds like it's something that, that naturally just came out of your friendship uh, that you've grow, grown over the years together in that area. Definitely. It's uh, it's not always easy to be friends with someone and work with them. And I think mm -hmm. we just have a kind of a unique relationship where mm -hmm. we're very honest with each other and uh, able to maintain that over many years. Is uh, Yeah, I think we're both very appreciative of it. And I think we're also not afraid to apologize when one or the other has been a, <laughs> a, a has been on the wrong side of a particular uh, position or, right. or choice. You know. Well, I I think that uh, relationship and that openness that you guys and the trust that you've got uh, together and de developed over the years has probably helped in many ways, as you say, especially in being open and honest with each other and and allowing yourselves to. Uh, address things that come up during production, as I'm sure they always do. I'm sure that you have had, for instance, many, many discussions as you went through this past five, almost six years now working on No Visible Trauma, 
which is not a light topic, which you are bringing to light. And it's something that, as you say, it's your hometown and that you are very close to. And you bring some very, very strong points to the film. Uh, congratulations, first of all, for being able to bring this to light and uh, to to bring the stories together, to bring the, the people that, you know, not only the, the stories around the people that it focuses on the three main characters uh, and their stories, but the people around those stories that you were able to bring in, uh, lawyers, uh, ex-police people, those kind of people that help to really flesh this out and bring, uh, you know, a real sense of what this is really all about. It focuses on these three stories and stories that some that we are familiar with and that we've seen in the media over the last number of years, but also it just allows us to go deeper, you know, a lot deeper into this and, and just see what's there. So the first question I want to ask you about with this film, No Visible Trauma, as you were just talking about your friendship, how much do you think that friendship helped you to delve into this story and, and bring this to light? Oh, I think, um, I think it's key. You know, I think it's been a long, uh, it's been a long and oftentimes challenging uh, process. Mm. And, uh, you know, like we were saying, I think having that um, ability to sort of rely on each other, both in terms of uh, decision making, and then also just sharing the various burdens, you know, there really is a lot. Um, you know, I don't know about, uh, uh, you know, I, I've had conversations with my with my parents, um, you know, which is like, how, how are you still doing this? Or I thought the movie was done, you know, a mm. year ago. And it's mm. just like, nope, there's just so much that goes right. into it. And it really does never seem to end, you know. Yes. Uh, just one example is, you know, we're currently uh, we're now selling the the television length version of the film, mm. um, you know, internationally, and uh, we just made the first sale to Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Public Broadcaster, which is interesting. And mm. you know, it just I think we're never surprised about all the, the the myriad tasks that seem to pop up that require further attention when you ostensibly think you might be kind of near the finish line. So, I think the other thing for us is just having grown up together in Calgary from a young age and, and being friends in Calgary, going to high school there and, and all our previous schooling as well. I think it really helped us stay grounded in, in why this film in particular matters for us. Um, and that connection, I think, you know, it's not just anybody who can go and make that film. I think that really is very helpful for us. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, um, as the as the, the the film is described, no visible trauma in the midst of global uprising against police brutality and systematic racism. No visible trauma examines a deeply troubled police department and reveals the devastating consequences of unchecked police brutality. Despite its relatively low crime rates, recent years have seen the Calgary Police Service shoot and kill more in any other Canadian city, more than either New York or Chicago department in 2018. Five years in the making, the film unravels the intertwined stories of three individuals who were the victims of extreme violence at the hands of police officers, from the kidnapping and beating of a young immigrant from Ghana to the fatal shooting of an unarmed man during a wellness check. The film exposes a criminal justice system that fails to hold police officers accountable for their actions. And that, in tr- that is, in fact, what we do see. And as I pointed off the top, that there is, you, you do have and bring a lot of characters. And it was fortunate that you were able to, uh, I guess, be able to get 
some of those characters that came forward, the ex-police officers, the ex-police chief, um, some of those people that that shed light on this and bring their inside view to what was going on and has been going on. Guys, how did how did this all how did this story come about? What was the first part of this that you started to look into? This started, I would say, so it's back in mid 2015. Uh, it really started for us with Godfrey Dadaimiche's story. Mm. He's the uh, young immigrant from Ghana. Yeah, uh, you mentioned there, um, and we uh, found out about his story shortly after a trial at which he'd been acquitted of assaulting a police officer. Mm. Now we started reviewing both the trial and then other materials related to the incident. Uh, it became fairly evident to us that, uh, as per Godfrey's side of the story, that the officer who had accused him of, of assault really had had quite uh, viciously assaulted him, uh, and this was following a kind of a, an entirely distinct uh, interaction with other officers, a kind of urban starlight tour. Some listeners mm-hmm. may be uh, familiar mm-hmm. with the term, in which officers picked up Godfrey without due process or cause, uh, transported him to a, a different location. In this case, a quite isolated, a very large uh, construction site. And abandoned them there at uh, nearly four in the morning in uh, w- in a tracksuit with no hat, gloves, or winter clothes, uh, in minus twenty eight degree uh, weather with the wind chill. So that was in and of itself that story from the sort of starlight tour to the he ended up calling for help and was assaulted by this other officer, and then uh, the what seemed to us a malicious prosecution um, that had ended in acquittal. Just had all these so many different moving parts and really. Um, we couldn't believe the density of uh, sort of troubling uh, malfeasance, um, you know, on the part of the police, but then also um, just the what was happening in the aftermath, the lack of accountability, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so that's really what kicked it off for us. And then uh, slight spoiler here, but jumping ahead to early 2017. Um, so we'd already been kind of talking to Godfrey and developing the concept uh, for a documentary for over a year at that point in time, uh, charges were announced against another Calgary police officer, aggravated assault charges. And while the officer wasn't originally named, it was leaked to the media um, that this officer was Constable Trevor Ian James Lindsay, the same officer um, who had um, assaulted Godfred and sort of been captured on um on video doing that and that mm-hmm. to us really was when i think uh, we really felt the need to sort of take a bigger look at the accountability mechanism specifically because godfred had filed a very serious formal complaint with the police a month after the incident so that's in january 2014 and yet this officer apparently without any sort of uh, uh change to his behavior or reprimand went on to sort of assault similarly somebody else in handcuffs uh, about a year and a half later um, so that was very disturbing to us and uh, made us want to take a, a, a deeper look at the, at the bigger picture uh, in terms of accountability, both within the department on sort of the municipal level, but then on the provincial level, starting to look at the uh, provincial watchdog, uh, which is ACERT, and then the Alberta, uh, which is the equivalent for Ontario listeners of SIU, uh, which looks at serious incidents involving police and then uh, the Crown prosecution as well. Yeah, you mentioned disturbing there, and I, I want to, uh, you know, I have to say that there is some very disturbing visual in the in the film itself about some of these some of these situations, and uh, it's quite quite alarming when you see it for the first time. And later on, you also interview family members of one of the other people that, and I'm not sure which family member it is. I think it might be the wellness check where you're talking to the brother of that person. 
And uh, they are actually a family of, uh, I believe, the police officer. His, their father is a police officer. It really does show the effect it has. And, and, and as I say, I, I'm still trying to deal with the images that I saw. And I, ha- I have to also say, though, that, and it's pointed out in the film, that we're talking about a, probably a very small number of officers that that look to be bad apples, perhaps. But all I'm saying is the police force does a, a, a very good job and it is a necessary force that we need. And there's a lot of good officers in there. It's unfortunate that this is coming out and, and we have to just try and put that in perspective. Their job is difficult, as it's also pointed out in the film. And we just need to uh, try to keep that in perspective because, like I said, it's, it's tough to watch some of the things that we see. Mark Rabinder? Uh Yeah, I think absolutely you're right. And and what you're pointing to there uh, is uh, Robert Haworth, who is uh, the brother of one of the the victims mm. of the police. He he actually points out that you know not every cop is going out there hurting people, and yeah. that there's cops uh, out there who will perform mouth to mouth resuscitation on his mm-hmm. brother when he's almost dying of an overdose. Mm. Um, in a different incident. So yeah, I, you know, we definitely have good police officers out there, there. There's no doubt. But I think the bigger issue for us, and the question always comes back to, where is the accountability? And mm-hmm. like with any other public servant, or with any person in life, I think, you know, we need to have a basic level of accountability for us to have uh, faith and uh, also just trust in the police force that they're doing their jobs correctly. And also so that they're doing the job that we expect of them and not hurting people and in, say, the case of Godfrey, not killing Godfrey, but with this severe beating mm-hmm. and this other violence, and then also the aftermath of that with the justice system, leaving him impacted for his entire life yeah. with uh, un- unbelievable amounts of trauma. Yep. So I think that's really the, the kind of questioning that we would like to do is, where is the accountability uh, for police officers? And, and also, what do we expect of police when, when they go for a wellness check? You know, what are the parameters that we should find acceptable as a society mm-hmm. that the police go in with their guns drawn for somebody who's in there not hurting anyone else, who's not, there's no indication that he has a weapon or a- yeah. any sort of harm, poses yeah. any sort of threat. Uh, should they go in with their guns drawn? Is that is that what we want as a society? Or would there be a better way to approach that situation? And I think these are the questions that we're really trying to raise. And, you know, there have been so many people who have been shot and killed by police officers, uh, and so many of them have been wellness checks, situations where mm-hmm. they end up in tragedy yep. and everyone wrings their hands. But really the question is, how do we make sure this doesn't happen anymore? Right. And that is really the Heffernans have been pushing for this, to make sure that no one else would, yes. would see the same fate as their son, Anthony, who was shot and killed by police officers in a hotel room uh, with no weapons, uh, totally unarmed. And... Th- they did not get their wish. Their wish of making sure that the Calgary Police Service would not shoot and kill other unarmed people did not come true. And in fact, the Calgary Police Service was involved in so many other shootings that it really did push us to make this film in some ways. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'd also like to welcome 
other people that are listening on other radio stations that are now carrying Moment of Truth. We welcome you to the show as well. You might also be listening on our SoundCloud and or one of your favorite podcast platforms. My guests here on the show today are Mark Serpa-Francoeur as well as Rabinder Appel, and uh, they are the co-founders of Lost Time Media. We're talking about a film they made entitled No Visible Trauma. It's a documentary, and it's going to be premiering on uh, Sunday, the 28th of February at the 2021 Kingston Canadian Film Festival, so you can check it out there, and I highly recommend that you do try to see this film uh, to really get a sense of the kind of things that we can only scratch the surface of here on the show today, but it is something... It's a documentary. It shows real facts and it shows the the situations that these people have faced. And it can shed some light for all of us on exactly what uh, both Mark and Rabindra were talking about, accountability and about the police services. And uh, we all know about the the things we've heard in the news of late, especially in 2020, um, regarding some of those wellness checks that went uh, horribly wrong and ended up in the death of several people. Across the country, gentlemen, no visible trauma. The name of the film itself. How and why did you choose that for your title? So the name actually comes out of its um, appears briefly in the film. Um, basically, during so Gottfried, who we had mentioned earlier, um, young guy who over the course of one night had a, just a series of horrendous interactions with the police that resulted mm-hmm. in him being quite brutally beaten. Um, what had happened is when he was eventually, he was detained and arrested uh, following the incident and uh, or incidents rather. And uh, he had been examined by EMS on the scene who noted trauma on his face and elsewhere. Um, and yet when taken just a few blocks away to the, um, the arrest processing unit of the Calgary Police Service, the uh, folks doing the intake there for some reason uh, quite... Um, difficult to believe uh, what the uh, justification is, uh, noted on his intake form, no visible trauma. Mm. So in the space of half an hour or something, he went from the medic saying visible trauma to the sort of internal who I think also has medical training at, uh, at the police saying no visible trauma. So that's where that came from in a literal sense. I think for us, it's sort of, there's a kind of a resonance or a, maybe on a functions on a metaphorical level speaking to sort of this, I mean, a number of things, but I would say like part of what we've been trying to call attention to is the fact that, you know, a lot of these problems that we're dealing with in Canada, uh, we just don't think that there's been sufficient attention on them. Mm -hmm. And so there's sort of this, this kind of brushing aside of the collective trauma of the collective problems, um, you know, be it with a stroke of a pen or whatever complex of factors. So I think that's kind of where that uh, concept comes for us, you know, and I think um, just sort of relating to what we were talking about a few moments ago too, um, you know, I think that we've, uh, really, um, uh, it's been a, of no benefit for us to be kind of living under the shadow of our neighbor to the south uh, in the sense that, you know, it's been kind of very standard, at least to us, it feels like, you know, to be deflecting in Canada saying, oh, you know, both just broadly speaking issues to do with racism, but then also, uh, you know, specifically with policing, police violence, these are American problems, these are American problems, and we really are so inundated with Mm-hmm. Uh, coverage from America country with, you know, 10 times the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of, I think, uh, I think that's been to our detriment and uh, we're dealing with a lot of the same problems. Uh, in fact, um, you know, you'd mentioned very early on a statistic that we sort of discovered just by crunching the numbers on our own, which was looking at um, the number of shootings, for example, uh, in Calgary, a city which kind of, again, without explanation has led the country um, 
you know, I think in 2016, you know, there was more shootings in Calgary than the 10 other largest cities in the country combined. Um, and in 2018, we saw these numbers where uh, there was the police, the Calgary Police Service shot and killed more people than either the New York or Chicago Police Departments. That's so there's cities with like six and or two, um, six and two times the population, you know, mm -hmm. respectively, and much, much, much higher crime rates right. uh, and rates of homicide. You know, we are crime rates in Canada and Calgary are really quite low. I think in that year, there was something like 17 homicides, not including the five people that police killed, whereas in Chicago, you're dealing with in the five, six hundred range, something like that. So these are really incredible disparities. And albeit that was those were good years from New York and Chicago and a bad year for Calgary. But still, that doesn't make me feel any better personally. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, the other thing you mentioned early on as well, the, the in Godfrey's story, it's late night. He's he's actually the designated driver. Uh, they get stuck in the snow. Officers stop and uh, they're trying to pull the car out or push the car out or something. And the next thing you know, he's he's being handcuffed and thrown in the vehicle and he has no idea what's going on or why. Uh, he's new to Canada and they drop him off, as you say, a few blocks later. And he's left, like you said, out in the middle of the, the four o'clock in the morning, uh, minus 28. And he, he then calls for help. And these things are captured. The, this whole thing is, is captured. It's a, I, I recommend people go to watch this to see just how it unfolds and, and get a sense of exactly what has happened. And we do follow Godfrey's story over the years, uh, right up until uh, 2020, when he is, in fact, at a, a march in, in Calgary. So uh, that Starlight tour, though, that you had mentioned about uh, officers picking someone up and dropping them off, that is not something that is uh, unique to uh, Gottfried. We have heard about that kind of thing happening with Indigenous people over the years as well. Many of them. Definitely. And uh, it, a, a major problem and something that Indigenous folks know about um, and that came to light in Saskatchewan with multiple people died of being mm -hmm. left out and mm -hmm. uh, in the elements exposed to the cold. And, and, you know, it's something that sort of, there were murmurs about before that and, and no one really took it that seriously. Right. But uh, the fact that police officers still, any police officer anywhere would engage in this kind of behavior is truly appalling. They have a responsibility, a duty of care to anyone who's under their custody and in, in the case of Godfrey, you know, they sort of picked him up with the pretense, at least after the fact, of saying he was intoxicated in public. Well, if someone is so intoxicated uh, that you need to arrest them and ticket them, mm -hmm. or at least to detain them and then give them a ticket, then how could you possibly leave that same person on a, a frigid street corner in right. minus 28 windshield with, right. when you everyone agrees that he wasn't wearing appropriate clothing, he was just wearing a light tracksuit? Right. How could you leave somebody like that to freeze to death, potentially? Yes. It's truly um, appalling, and I think it's just the kind of behavior that, you know, it gives the entire police department kind of a bad look and a bad name with, with certainly with uh, communities of color, um, but also with everyone who has a conscience and 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 thinks that this is not how we should public servants should be treating members of the public, and and I think the other thing that people have to realize if if there's some idea like oh there's some justice being served there if this is like a bad person you like leave them and they'll get their dust desserts doesn't actually work that way because it ends up costing the entire public so much more money with trials and appeals and then complaints against officers. All of this costs the public inordinate sums of money. This is not how we do justice in Canada. Mm. Uh, and sort of beating somebody up, that's not a good approach, even if you're sort of a law and order, you know, aggressive person. That's not a good idea for you because it's going to end up costing you when that person sues the police, 
sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in legal fees. And in Calgary, all these legal fees for officers are still paid by the city of Calgary. So even if you're a defender of the police, you should want them to be accountable for their actions and to stop doing things like this, to stop using force when it's not necessary, because it's really for for the best. Right. Understood. And I'll just I'll just add to that. You know, I think it's uh, and there's so many of these sort of details that we found so particularly disturbing uh, that speak to uh, just how easily things can go off the rails and how much power uh, police officers have mm. and, and how easy it is to abuse that power either by it could be a mix of it could be malicious it could just be incompetence so speaking specifically about godford's case uh while he was accused by the first set of uh, or by the officers of having been intoxicated he maintains not only had he not been drinking but his whole reason for being out that night was as a favor as a designated driver driving Mm -hmm. his friends home Mm -hmm. so uh that being said he received this ticket for public intoxication he was never breathalyzed he was never um he was never uh, performed a sobriety test, even a sort of traditional walk the line kind. Um, nor was he again taken to the drunk tank. When asked in court, "Why didn't you take the, uh, uh, you know, this man to the drunk tank if he was drunk?" the officer says, "Oh well, uh, you know, they always tell us it's full down there, something to that effect." Which and it's just sorry, like what? Like oh, what I wanted, to- I, I wanted to give him a chance to cool off. Is the other line that the officer wow. says, and the judge repeats back to him in testimony. He said, "I wanted to give him a chance to cool off." In minus twenty eight. Yeah. The state is in front of a judge. I mean. And again, despite the fact that this came out in court, despite the fact that the police service and we've actually just had a decision released by the police to do with one of the myriad complaints around this case, despite the fact that this behavior was known, police service as still to this day, there's been no um, you know, action taken against the officers for this behavior, uh, certainly no criminal charges filed. Mm. Um, and it's just incredible. And, and, and just to put a final note on it with the, in terms of this whole intoxication point. So during the actual officer that ended up charging him, he testified in court, he was asked, how did you determine that Godfrey was drunk? And he says, well, there was two things. One is that the other officers told him so, which as far as our understanding of, uh, police, uh, guidelines is totally inappropriate. Uh, and the other one was that Godfrey, after he had been uh, left in the cold, he'd been out in that freezing temperature for something approaching half an hour. He'd been uh, tasered three times. He'd been beaten about the head and left in what, you know, certainly in a day's state, I think we can conclude. Mm-hmm. Um, because Godfrey kept repeating the line, and I quote, I don't deserve this. Right. <laughs> the fact that Godfrey kept repeating in a sort of stunned state after all of this nightmare that he didn't deserve this, yeah. this is how the officer chose to determine that he was drunk. Just... Just outrageous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for us, it really put the, you know, the, the fear in us of just of how easily and how quickly things can go from really from fine to bad to worse. And then even when the information is all on the table before the agencies and the entities that are supposed to be protecting us, that are supposed to be ensuring accountability. Here we are. That was in late 2013. So we're in 2021, eight years later, you know, nothing. It's really, uh, really appalling and really disturbing. And I think uh, that's consistently the, you know, the feedback we've got from people. They just, you know, shocking to them that this is what's happening in in uh, in their cities. And, 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 and really, these are issues. This is not none of this is endemic to Calgary. Uh, I think your listeners will know, you know, across the country that these are um, issues and behaviors and problems that really are reflected right across uh, Canada. So it's high time for us to start to demanding better of our police services and also I think imagining how things can be different you know we always there's a phrase we've kind of latched onto that policing is not a monolith you know it's not mm-hmm. like there's one way to do mm-hmm. uh, police work you know in England uh, we see very different types of um, t- 
techniques used to say disarm somebody who does have a sharp object. You essentially use shields and you kind of corner somebody in a room or even outside and essentially wait for them to calm down. Um, there's an excellent film done by CBC a few years ago, Hold Your Fire, that folks can also check out that really illustrates this mm. very well. Um, and then just in terms of like conventional policing as we know it, uh, there's lots of different ideas going around, lots of discussion about, for example, um, real reallocating uh, not just resources, but then, um, you know, say bringing in more social workers to deal with a lot of the kinds of um, issues that um, police officers, be it, you know, dealing with, um, you know, either people in mental health crises or addictions issues are just, I think they've demonstrated over and over again, um, are just not necessarily those that are well trained uh, to do that work. And uh, we're starting to get some, you know, in BC, I just saw the other day, um, uh, the reports come out basically uh, recommending a pretty, a pretty serious reallocation of resources to particularly to precisely that kind of uh, and to basically shift resources over to more of the social services side of things. I think mm. that's one general trend in terms of where things are going. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a good direction to us. Right. Okay, guys, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. I want to thank you for taking the time to do so. We've been talking to Mark Serpa Francoeur and Rabinder Appel, and they are both co-founders of Lost Time Media. We've been talking to them about their film, No Visible Trauma, which is going to be shown at the Kingston Canadian Film Festival on Sunday, February 28th going on. You want to find out more, you can go to kingcanfilmfest.com to find out more. And if you want to find out more about Mark and Rabinder and what they're doing at Lost Time Media, guys, what's the name of your website? It's losttimemedia.com and people can follow us on uh, Twitter at Lost Time Media or on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, our handle is Above the Law Doc. All right. And uh, you'll find other information about, uh, you know, issues around policing around the country there so please check us out all right guys thank you so much thank you so much for the film no visible trauma check it out at the canadian film festival this weekend and check it out online as well thank you so much for having us david you bet thank you take care Bye. and that is this part of the program don't go away we're going to be right back with more right here on moment of truth right after this now back to moment of truth with david moses element 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 fm Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show someone actually from Element FM. We don't often have people from Element FM on as guests. However, uh, you know, COVID-19 has done a lot of strange things over the last years, this being one of them, you might say. But it's a pleasure to welcome Bruce Barber to the show. Now, Bruce is the manager of marketing. He's in promotions and social media, as well as now a weekend morning host. So it's a pleasure to welcome Bruce to the show. And he's here because of COVID-19. Now, Bruce is a person of Indigenous heritage, and he recently was able to get the vaccine for COVID-19. We wanted to talk to Bruce a little bit about what it was like for him, a little bit about what he knows about the vaccine, what uh, kind of information he was given. And so it's a pleasure to welcome Bruce to the show. Bruce. Hey, David. How's it going? You know, it's going okay, Bruce. So uh, <laughs> congratulations on uh, debuting here on Moment of Truth. It's a pleasure yes, to have you finally. on the show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course, your handiwork is always in, in being used with Moment of Truth because uh, of social media handles and those kind of things that you are always putting out the, the visuals for and, and uh, sending out that stuff. So thank yeah, you. I already feel at home. So <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So listen, when did you get the vaccine? 
Uh, so I got it on Friday. Um, so last Friday. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So I'm feeling fine. You know, I just had a little bit of a sore arm. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, really no side effects. Okay. So how did you find out about the fact that you were able to get the vaccine? So a week prior to that, I was kind of watching the news and, you know, all of a sudden there was an expansion to phase one Mm -hmm. uh, that included all Indigenous adults, um, you know, being that a lot of the other Indigenous people Mm -hmm. have been vaccinated, um, you know, the up north communities and more of the at risk. Um, So Mm -hmm. my curious mind went, you know, uh, how do we go about it? Like, is there a way that I can apply or get on a wait list or, you know, Mm -hmm. however that works? So. You know, my little eager beaver mind decided to email all, or sorry, I actually called all levels of government. So mm. municipal, federal, and provincial, and they kind of all pointed in each other's direction. So there was not too mm. much information there for that kind of helped me at all. Um, but they did point my, my direction towards the indigenous health authority here. So I contacted them and, you know, they did run a pilot and they're starting to get their infrastructure together. So I don't think they were quite ready to, you know, get on that, um, the ball yet. So, um, I also emailed, um, the hospitals within my vicinity and, um, two of them replied back, you know, kind of giving me the generic, you know, check the Ontario website to make sure, you know, are you up to date to when, you know, those vaccines will be ready. Um, but then one hospital actually did reply back and said, you know, you're absolutely right. Indigenous adults and, you know, it's green lit, come on in. So Hmm. they booked me an appointment for Friday and yeah, I was able to get in. So, so, (laughs) okay. Uh, And, Prior to that, mm-hmm. you know, there's still some, you know, some questions around the vaccine itself. What kind of questions did you have prior to going to get the vaccine? And did you have questions about it when you arrived? Um, so I, I'm the kind of person that will do the research beforehand. And, mm-hmm. you know, if it's right for me, is it not? And I know like some of my family members are not getting it at all, mm-hmm. um, just due to the fact that they don't know, you know, the long term mm-hmm. consequences towards this. But mm-hmm. As somebody who does have, you know, pre-existing health conditions and, you know, I, I thought it's probably the safest for me to do it because um, if I happen to catch COVID, it could be a very bad thing for me. Right. Um, so I had to really think about that and just a lot of online research. And, you know, I have some friends that are in the medical field that, you know, I did ask them about, you know, how vaccines work. And um, so it didn't seem too kind of crazy for me to, to go for it. So Okay understandable i i get that now the thing is that do you know which which of the vaccines you received i got the pfizer okay the pfizer vaccine and you said when you got it you you had a bit of a sore arm but there were you never had yeah any like vaccine. i had the flu shot um yep. a few months ago yep. and uh it was comparable to that okay. so it wasn't really i didn't have any side effects to it mm. so no fever no headache right a little bit of pressure in the head just like an onset of a headache but i was like you know they tell you uh, when you get those kind of side effects, it means it's working, right? Oh, okay. uh, your body's starting to build uh, oh. those antibodies. And, right. Yeah. Now, the people in your family that you say are not going to receive it, they don't want to get the vaccine. What are what are their what are they citing as reasons? Uh, again, they just don't know the long term um, outcome of of like, there's not enough research mm. in it yet because mm-hmm. it was developed so quickly. Sure. Um, so you know, and everybody you know has their their right to not take it if yep. they don't feel you know it's it's safe for them right um but for my myself you know I, I decided to to go for it now did they explain anything to you about the vaccines because these are new new kinds of vaccines right they're not the the kind of vaccines we have received in the past these have been the, these were developed in a new way i think they mm-hmm. attached to proteins or something like that right 
Um, no, there was when I actually went to go get it, there was really no explanation other than, you know, they're just assigning your forms and stuff like mm. that to get the vaccine. Mm. So it wasn't, yeah, too much information at that time. Okay. And what about um, the, the, how busy it was when you got there? Did you find it fairly busy or? No, not at all. Actually, I was in a queue of like two people. Um, I think purposely they were doing that. Um, but yeah, there wasn't too many. And then they basically you go in, you get the vaccine, you sign off the forms, um, and then they take you to a recovery room for about 15 minutes just to make sure that you don't have any like immediate side effects. Right. Um, and so, yeah, during that wait, they then uh, book you for your next dose. Okay. So that will happen for me at the end of March. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, yeah, so that was pretty easy and kind of in and out. Mm. So yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't too bad at all. <laughs> okay. Now, Bruce, you're an urban dweller and you have uh, people back home, I believe, on reserve. Uh, you're in contact with them, I'm sure. How, how's everybody doing? Uh, everybody's doing great. I mean, Thunder Bay is where I'm from. Um, the case count is getting a little bit higher there, and especially within the schools. Mm. So it is, you know, getting a little bit anxious about what's happening up there. But, you know, everybody's being safe and in my family, at least. And, and are they are they experiencing much in the way of the new variants that they're seeing up there? Not as far as I know now. Mm. Okay. Anything else that comes to mind for you, Bruce, in terms of this experience that you went through and getting the, uh, the vaccine and, and what you might want to share with others? Well, you know, definitely putting in the work for myself was able to get out there and try to find it myself instead of waiting for that invitation to come because, mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of paid off because dealing with some of these hospitals, they actually invited me to sit at, <laughs> you know, um, a table to help plan for this. So it was kind of interesting to see how that panned out. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of excited to be able to help and, and get the word out there and, and help with the planning on how to get this vaccination out to the Indigenous community. Um, and, you know, sharing my ways of, you know, and knowledge on how to get that out. So, right, that's the word pretty, out at least. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. You, so through this, uh, through this experience of, of dealing with the hospital, asking your questions, they actually invited you to sit on a, on a panel for Indigenous rollout of, of the vaccine to the community. Mm -hmm. I guess they wanted the eager beaver, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Well, congratulations on that, Bruce. And congratulations you, on the morning show. Congratulations on all the work you do for us here at Element FM, both in Toronto and Ottawa. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show. It's been great yeah. talking to you. Can't wait to come back. <laughs> all right. It might be sooner than you, than you think, Bruce. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, take care. Thank you. All right, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is Bruce Barber, and he is the manager of marketing and promotions and social media, as well as weekend morning host right here. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. All right. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It's a pleasure to have you listening to the show, wherever you might be. It is also a pleasure to welcome to the show my next guest, who is Sandy Ward. And she's on the show to talk to us about the, the an, a Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival, which sounds quite nice in itself. It's going to be running from the February 19th to the 28th. And also on the 25th of 
of February, it's going to be having a live panel discussion. And I believe that Sandy Ward is going to be taking part of that, along with uh, the moderator, uh, Maya Antone. So it's a pleasure to have Sandy on the show, but a little bit more about her. She is a member of the Lilwat Nation and an avid snowboarder, mountain biker, and climber. She has been snowboarding for 20 years and has been a competitive half-pike rider, snowboard instructor, and backcountry enthusiast during the winter season when not teaching snowboarding in the resort. You can find her in the backcountry on a traditional territory, which sounds lovely for this time of year. And so it's a pleasure to have Sandy on the show. She is also one of the co-founders of the Indigenous Women in the Outdoors. And that is tied in with this festival that we're going to be talking about. So it's a pleasure to have Sandy on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really uh, excited for this uh, panel discussion next week. How did you get interested in uh, snowboarding and the kind of things that you do? Mountain biking, you're obviously a very, very active person. Yes, uh, I come from the coast mountains of BC where everybody kind of gets involved in all of these crazy outdoor sports. So uh, I've been involved in outdoor recreation pretty much my whole life. Uh, I didn't start snowboarding until I was maybe 15 years old mm. uh, because there were just so many other things that were that were available to mm. do outside. Um, it took me a while to get into snowboarding, but once I did, it was just First Nation snowboard team took me so far and kind of paved the way for me to get into competitive snowboarding which was really amazing and it's organizations like that that have really helped out the youth in our area to get involved in these kind of high cost recreational sports right i'm glad you mentioned the first nation snowboard team tell me more about that yeah they're uh actually just reformed the organization so we used to be the first nation snowboard team which had teams all across Canada, uh, which it like just, it got kids in indigenous nations to get out and experience snowboarding, experience the mountains. And we've just changed this year. We've started uh, the Indigenous Life Sport Academy. So that is going to include more sports than just snowboarding. So we're gonna have skateboarding, climbing, mountain biking, all of these amazing activities that the kids will now have access to. And so we're starting that in the Sea to Sky in British Columbia, mm. the north, south coast. And hopefully, maybe one day we'll be able to spread all, all over Canada like we did with the First Nations snowboard team. Wow, that sounds great. I can't help but think about the the mountains of, of British Columbia, and you said the coastal mountains in particular. Uh, where does that allow you? W would Whistler be part of that? Yeah, I'm actually calling you from Whistler. It's the traditional <laughs> territory of the Lealtwat and the Squamish Nation. Mm. Um, so that kind of encompasses the Sea to Sky corridors, Lealtwat, Squamish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh. Uh, I hope I'm not getting anybody there. Mm. <laughs> And how's the winter been out there? Cold lately, actually. Mm. So I believe all of Canada is getting this Arctic yeah. outflow. Mm -hmm. um, and it's now just starting to warm up as of yesterday. But we were seeing temperatures of minus 30 in mm. the top of the mountain, which is cold for the coast. Sure. Yeah, it is. But has it been good for uh, winter activities, though? Uh, it's been interesting. We've had uh, quite a bit of snow but we've had those warm days, which isn't really good for the snowpack. So we're seeing a lot of instability in the backcountry, which mm. has been pretty scary. So, uh, yeah, definitely need to be knowledgeable before hitting up the, right. the backcountry for right. sure. 
Now, in terms of the First Nations snowboard team itself, how many people are on that team? Uh, well, again, we have got teams all the way up, I believe, in um, the Northwest Territories. And mm-hmm. then I think there was one in Nova Scotia even. So I don't know the numbers exactly. Mm-hmm. And we've downsized quite a bit this year just due to COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't actually started the program because of the the pandemic. So right. uh, sorry, I don't have a number for you there. Okay, no worries. Now, you also are, uh, I think you're in charge of the, the recreational program? Uh, I'm not in charge. I'm a coach. Okay. So yeah, we, we have the recreational program. So we have kids. This year is going to be from the ages of 12 to 18. Um, in previous years, we've had them as young as like, eight years old or seven years old even. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just like we get 20 kids out on the hill all at once and it's amazing. So we need a lot of instructors for that. And I, I coach for the, the team. Right. And is that how is that any different than, say, the Indigenous women in the outdoors? How is that different? So uh, the Indigenous Life Sport Academy focuses mainly on the youth. So it's 18 and under mm-hmm. uh, with opportunities. Once you kind of progress out of that age range, then maybe you can become a coach or an instructor. Um, so that's pretty cool. With Indigenous Women Outdoors, we're more focused on the adult women Okay. And kind of progressing them if they've gone through the First Nation snowboard team. Awesome. Join us in the backcountry. Uh, this a lot of Indigenous women face a lot of problems and tragedies in life. So we just want to be able to get women out and reconnect them with the land and their traditional territories. Because it's just so helpful mentally, spiritually, physically to be out in the land. No so that's question. Our, our main goal. No question about that. Uh, that's for sure. That's that's a great concept. It's great that you guys are, are doing that. And, and, and how would you say it is going? Amazing, actually. So Maya started the idea, of, I believe, a couple of years ago. I didn't actually meet Maya until this fall. Mm. And ever since we met, the, the whole Indigenous Women Outdoors idea has just skyrocketed us into this this new world for us and like we're just learning as we're going along and uh we've managed to certify the eight women so far with their ast1 that's avalanche skills training Mm -hmm. certification level one uh we're going to do we have three more in the ast2 so the second level of that this week actually so Mm -hmm. we're i think we're doing really well (laughs) that's great to hear now is this pretty much a local initiative? I'm just thinking again about how we're online and, and are you getting people from across the country or other parts of Turtle Island? Yeah, when we started, when we opened up applications, we had them coming in from all over the place. Mm. But we are a new organization, so we are just focusing on the Sea to Sky with mm. uh, the Squamish and the Lilwat Nations. Mm. Uh, hopefully, maybe one day we can expand to involve more people, more women. Mm. Uh, I believe we even had interest from Chile, wow. a Chilean indigenous <laughs> lady mm. who I believe resides in on Turtle Island. I think oh, yeah. here in the South Coast as right, well. Right. It was really, really cool to see how many women actually applied and we're excited to get into the backcountry with us. Yeah, that sounds great. And I guess if people want to find out more, they can go to the Indigenous Women in the Outdoors website, correct? 
Yeah, so it's indigenouswomenoutdoors.ca. Okay, great. And so, okay, let's start talking about the Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival. As we mentioned off the top, it's going to be running from February 19th to the 28th. And you're going to be taking part in that live panel discussion on the 25th. And I believe that's going to be after one of the films. There's a, a number of films that are going to be shown. Yes. So we will be, I'm not sure the actual schedule, mm-hmm. but I believe we're around a, what was it, Connect is the film? Oh, yeah, that's one of them. I know I saw Connect, and then there's In the Footsteps of Our Ancestors. People can go online to the uh, Indigenous Identity in the Outdoors uh, for the uh, Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival. You can find out about tickets. You can find out about taking part in that. Yes, Connection, In the Footsteps of Our Ancestors, and Water Flows Together, and uh, Mystery of Now uh, are the ones that I see listed. Yeah. What can you tell us about this? Oh, yeah. So we'll be within that um, Indigenous category. So we'll be the panel discussion, Indigenous identity in the outdoors. And we've got um, a few panelists, absolutely amazing crew, it seems. I have had the opportunity to meet uh, Chelsea McCutcheon, Mm -hmm. um, obviously through Indigenous Life Sport Academy. But we've also got Curtis Rattray of Adziza Trails in northern B.C., uh, Candace Campbell from Talis A Tours in the uh, Sunshine Coast in Vancouver area. Michele Oliver coming all the way from America. So mm. we'll have a different perspective there and between American and Canadian as an in Indigenous identities. And Chelsea McCutcheon from Indigenous Women, or sorry, she's part of our actual program, Indigenous Women Outdoors, but also involved with the Indigenous Life Sport Academy. And mm-hmm. then we've got Simka Martin of the islands, Vancouver Island, mm. who will be joining us as well. Well, Vancouver Island, beautiful spot. I have relatives mm-hmm. there myself. Hey, have you ever been over to the um, the Comox Valley to go skiing in that area or, or snowboarding? No. I've never been to the island to go skiing, but mm. this coming March, hopefully doing a trip to, I think, Mount Kane with a, a different project that I'm working on. Mm. Uh, well, that's wonderful. And, and it's great to hear. What What are you excited about in terms of, you know, the, as this film festival starts to approach and the panel discussion that you are, are planning to take part in? I'm just really excited to hear everybody's perspectives and stories. Um, mm. I think it's going to be really cool to see the difference of all these different places, all these different land types. So we have Vancouver Island, the ocean, we've got northern BC, the mountains, we've got the prairies down in America, like all of these different identities coming out through land. I think it's going to be really cool to hear everybody's stories that we have. Mm. Now, going back to the the snowboarding, uh, you know, the First Nations women's snowboarding group that you belong to, has does that allow, uh, or have you guys ever taken part in competitions? Yeah, the First Nations snowboard team. We used to have, uh, we used to travel out to Big White all the time in the interior of BC for the provincial series. And that's how I kind of got involved in the competitive side of things. But we also had the like little contests here on like Whistler and on uh, on Cyprus that the like, the little little ones could get involved in. So we had like you know like little ten year olds going out and ripping it up in the <laughs> snowboard cross, which mm. was pretty cool. But <laughs> we're focusing more on the I guess mental health aspect mm. side of things. So it's really stressful to be a competitive 
athlete, obviously. So we want the kids to be out there to have fun Mm -hmm. more than anything now. So we're gearing towards more like life sports and doing this for fun rather than contest, which can get really stressful for the kids. Just wondering if there's anything that, that we haven't touched on that you think is important to mention either about the upcoming film festival and or things that you might be doing that people would find interesting or maybe want to check out. I just think it's really amazing that all of these organizations are putting together all of like panels and films about indigenous identities and like throughout North America here. And I'm just really excited to see more of this happening. Um, I was recently a part of a panel discussion about um, inclusion in the outdoors and how the industry could be more inclusive to diversify the whole industry as I think that was really amazing. And I think Mm. it's going to be awesome to see what happens next with other film festivals or other uh, web-based learning. Like it's been huge during COVID. Mm. Right. And and you're on Whistler, as you pointed out there. I'm just wondering how has COVID affected things in, in your area of working in, but also taking the pleasure of doing snowboarding? How have things been affected out there? Well, obviously, we don't have our international uh, tourism mm. anymore, so it's been pretty quiet. Mm. Uh, but like, as far as the mountain, as long as you're, you know, keeping your distance and everything, right. it just feels the same. I find the backcountry to be uh, busier than the average year, mm. but that's kind of to be expected. A lot of people want to get away from the resorts. Mm. So. Okay, well, um, I'm of course envious of the fact that you're out there in Whistler, and I'm stuck here, but that's just to be expected. But uh, thank you so much for taking time to join us on the show and tell us about uh, what you're involved with about the film festival. All right, Sandy, I'll let you get back to it. You enjoy. Thank you. You too. All right, take care. And that was the voice of Sandy Ward. She is one of the people involved with Indigenous Women in the Outdoors, and she's also going to be taking part in the Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival. That is happening from February 19th to the 28th, and it's going to have a live panel discussion on February 25th, and that's going to be including Maya Antone, the moderator, and uh, also Sandy Ward. And Sandy Ward is a member of the Lilwat Nation and a member of the First Nations snowboard team in British Columbia. We spoke with her from Whistler, B.C. It was a pleasure to speak with her. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.